Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Flight Guys Turkey. This is Jansu Çamlıbel, coming to you from Izmir. As I moved my home office to the Asian coast of Turkey, since Duvar headquarters has not fully gone back to the normal world, most of our staff still do work from home, contrary to the majority of Turkey, I might say. On the line with me is the co-host of the show, Can Selçuk'i. Can is in Istanbul. Hi, Can. Hi, Can. So, yes, I'm in a very hot and humid Istanbul. Finally. I'm rather envious of you. Finally, <laughs> the real Istanbul summer weather is here with us. Today, Can and I, we have a guest with us to discuss how all the political crazy of the last weeks in Turkey is being perceived outside Turkey, especially in Europe. And to analyze the Western take on President Erdogan and his ruling Justice and Development Party's recent policies, recent moves, we have Galip Dalai with us today on the line. Galip is currently working as a senior fellow at Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin, and he's also a non-resident fellow at the Oxford University. He is someone who is very well known by the Turkey wonks around the world. He is a regular of almost all brainstorming tables on Turkey as a policy advisor. And without further ado, Galip, welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. Great to have you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You were grounded in Turkey for a bit during the most difficult months of the pandemic. But as far as I know, you are back to traveling somehow. Where are you at the moment? Well, at the moment, actually, I'm in Berlin, but I have been actually, uh, during the pandemic, largely in Berlin, and the life is back to normal. Quite a while ago, restaurants, cafes, all of them are open and quite full, actually. People are taking some precautions and people are, like, paying attention to the measures, but nevertheless, the life has been back to normal for quite a while ago now. John and I, we would like to discuss, and we would like you to help us, help our audience understand the mindset of President Erdogan's key interlocutors in the West. As it's everyone's common knowledge today, the relations between Turkey and European Union, and of course also with the United States, have been in a tough place for a long time. We all hoped that the pandemic would help ease these tensions by bringing the nations together around a more humanitarian cause. But unfortunately, that did not really happen. And especially in terms of Turkey's relations with the European Union, it seems that we picked up in a much worse point since we left off back at the at the beginning of March. So, Galip, I think it would be great if you could summarize your general take on this framework. And of course, then we'll further discuss and go deeper into the heart of the problems. And of course, needless to say, John, please jump in wherever you feel like. When the decision makers or the policy makers look at Turkey from the West, from the Europe in particular, right now there is a change in the expectation, uh, expectation from each other. So first and foremost, we should bear in mind that the nature of Turkish-European relation has changed dramatically. And therefore, the European expectation of Turkey has also changed dramatically as well, too. Now, it is the logic of geopolitics and trade that is a major determinant of Turkish-European relationship. And that pretty much shapes the European approach to many of Turkey's 
action in recent years as well, too. I mean, the center of crisis between Turkey and Europe a uh, few years ago was very much centered on Berlin, on Germany. And then the issue back then was domestic politics and diaspora. Now it moved to Paris. Now the issue at hand is the geopolitics, particularly the geopolitics of Eastern Mediterranean and, and Libya. The Hagia Sophia issue, in a sense, has been perceived differently because in recent years, as I said, like, you know, the geopolitics was the major issue, the refugees, the radicalism. Once again, briefly, the talk has been Islamization of Turkey. Uh, but this is like more at the media level. I think like at the decision-making level, this is not how it's been framed uh, as well too. So it's just being seen as a major symbolic or populist move by many decision-makers on the policy-maker level. But particularly at the media level, there was a large media indignation. And then the talk one, once again has been very much kind of like whether the secularism in Turkey was at risk, whether we are seeing the Islamization of Turkey. So this is a major change because like the talk of the Islamization of Turkey was much more popular in 2012 and 13 because like with the Gezi Park protests, we were in a context in which there was Arab Spring, there was the coup in Egypt. Therefore, back then, Erdogan was seen in line with the people like, you know, Mursi and other uh, Islamist leaders in Turkey. And therefore, the authoritarianism of Turkey was seen through the Islamist lenses. But since 2015, 16, 17, in Europe, in the West, uh, the authoritarianism of Turkey was not seen through the lenses of Islamism, but rather the broader wave of populism and authoritarianism across the world. And now Erdogan was more and more and more compared with leaders like Duterte, with leaders like you know, Putin, Orban, Moody, Trump. So the Hagia Sophia once again a bit brought the issue of Islamism on the table, but in reality uh, there wasn't much reaction at the decision-making level. It was more of a media reaction, and the obvious reason for this is the change in the expectation level, and particularly Germany recently very much adopts a geopolitical perspective when it comes to Turkey's, Turkey's role. So from the Turkish side, Turkey has given up on the idea of the West, the indispensability of the West, but not the institution of the West. From the Western side, they gave up on the domestic transformation of Turkey, but they have not given up on the geopolitics of Turkey. And this is pretty much what shapes the current relationship. John, at this point, I would like you to come into the discussion whether if you think that the Turkish government has really given up on the European agenda. Is that how you see Erdogan's game? I don't think that the Turkish government has given up uh, on the European agenda. However, I think it changed, obviously, dramatically. For a while now, we know that, you know, the Turkish government has opted a very transactional way of looking at relationship with the EU. And, you know, this manifested itself during the, the infamous, I have to say, the refugee agreement. And back in the day, you know, there were uh, still more dialogue between Turkey and, and the EU, but all based on transactions, whether it be it energy, whether it be it migration, or blocking of migration, uh, to put it more accurately. And I think although conversation has really been reduced since then, I think the Turkish government still has a transactional perspective on the relationship. And I think it will have to come back in the form of uh, talking about customs union again. I realize this may sound uh, off topic for the time being, at least for what we are discussing in Turkey, 
But the COVID period has also shown us that the customs union, to be more specific and modernized, deepened customs union is ever more important for Turkey going forward if Turkey is to find new sources of growth for its struggling economy. To sum it up, I think the EU agenda is still there for the Erdogan government, but it is you know, very, very transactional. And I don't think the broader scope of the accession framework is any longer valued. Having said this, let me say a few uh, final words at this in this first round. There's an increasing support of EU membership among the public. It's around 60% that people support EU membership. Obviously, I don't think that people support all aspects of EU membership, but I think there's an increasing understanding in the population that amidst the uh, global challenges, Turkey would be better off if it aligned itself with some uh, traditional uh, Western partners, at least in some uh, areas of cooperation. I mean, it's all uh, good and nice, you know, Turkey developing its own weapons, uh, you know, allying with Russia or China or, you know, diversifying its foreign partners. But at the end of the day, EU is still seen as a, you know, stable uh, partner that's needed for Turkey's future. That's interesting because, I mean, I don't know how you, how you put the most recent question to the Turkish public, but if they are talking about being in favor of an EU membership, they are actually being in favor of something which will not happen anytime soon. And we already lost track of the negotiation chapters and everything. And it seems to me that there is this silence agreement between the both sides that the real membership is kind of off the table. So both sides are using the dynamics of the framework But the key itself, the content that Turkey has to pursue to become a full member is not happening. Nobody is doing anything towards that end, towards meeting that end. Back in the day, back in 2004-05, when leaders like Sarkozy, even Angela Merkel herself, they were talking about privileged partnership. This was a red line uh, for the Turkish government. Yes, I mean, I see your point, and I did interrupt your line of thought perhaps, but look, this is not only because of the current politics or East Med that this is being discussed. We also need to take a broader look at this and see that, you know, UK is now, England is actually now a privileged member. The modes of association with the EU is also diversifying. Yes, I mean, Turkey's current conflicts with several EU members in different areas obviously fuels this discussion, but there's also a broader trend that feeds this discussion, which is that, like I said, modes of association with the EU are diversifying, and I think we will see that discussion gaining more momentum in the future. You know, exactly. how is the how is the UK going to position itself? Is there going to be a core EU? Is there going to be a, a second-tier EU? So this is sort of a discussion outside of Turkey as well. Well, I think this is exactly the issue, because like in 2000, when the privileged partnership was offered for Turkey, that effectively meant a second-tier membership. One of the things that, that goes all the way to even the NATO membership, there was a previous arrangement that was offered by Americans which did not offer exactly full membership to Turkey, but at something in between to Turkey and Greece, that was rejected outrightly because back then even the government of the Mendes back then saw this as relegating to Turkey as a second-tier status. So in this regard, the 
previous rejection of Turkey's privileged partnership was more of a manifestation of status crisis. That Turkey saw this reducing its role, reducing its status. But now the fact that a country like UK, a major country, will have to establish a new form of the relationship with Europe, to some extent that will lift Turkey's status anxiety vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Europe as well. But once again, the trouble that we are seeing, the reason that I said Turkey is giving up on the idea of the West, because the idea of the West historically in Turkey meant transformation, domestic political transformation, economic transformation, the indispensability of the West that historically meant basically looking many other relations, Turkey looking at its other international relations through the lenses of the West. This is no longer the case as well. Turkey treats the West as one center of the power amongst many. The other new center of powers includes places like you know, China, Russia, etc. But Turkey is not giving up on the institution of the West. And the two most important institutions of the West is the NATO membership and the custom union at this stage. And this is why exactly Turkey will be doubling down on its effort for the custom union modernization as part of this also like, you know, the talk on the visa liberalization because the visa liberalization issue or from Turkey's perspective is uh, also related to its status. And then the third will be basically the economic assistance for the refugees. Uh, yes, the nature of this relationship is becoming very transactional, but the question is, can you create a transformative form of transactionalism? And here there is the crisis on European side because Turkey it has quite clear idea on what it wants with the transactionalism. It wants the custom union modernization, it wants the visa liberalization, it wants like you know more economic assistance. But what Europe wants to get from this transactional form of relationship is not very clear. And this is exactly what we are seeing the, the trouble because different European countries want different things and there is no really a European level consensus on if the basis of this relationship is transactionalism. So what the Europeans should be expecting from Turkey, what conditionality should Europe attach to this transactionalism? Therefore, like the reward comes with some form of transformation as well. Guys, when we talk about Turkey's relations with the West, with Europe, I mean, obviously, EU is a very juicy topic. But then at the heart of this relationship really lies Turkey's NATO membership now. This is something you touched upon, Galip, and um, I know uh, from my time in, in Washington, D.C. last year that this is also almost becoming a point of debate for some circles. Not all the circles, because I believe and I see that the majority of the European leadership, uh, as well as the American policymakers, are concerned. They are aware of Turkey's importance as a NATO member. But of course, there are sinister observers, politicians who would like Turkey out of NATO as well. So how is that debate going on at the moment? Well, I mean, first right now, the trouble with NATO is if Trump is re-elected, let's assume so, even though the polls show that the Biden is leading quite with a good margin, but let's assume if the Trump is elected, what will be the future of NATO? This is one of the questions that particularly the European has to entertain. But the trouble is the European has so much got, you know, used to the comfort of operating within a US-centric foreign and security policy framework. They're not even willing to entertain this idea. There is an intellectual consciousness of these options. There is a political consciousness. But this intellectual and political consciousness does not turn into a governmental action as well. So 
I mean, there is unhappiness with Turkey's action. There is unhappiness with Turkey's, like, you know, strategies. I don't think that this will amount to anything when it comes to Turkey's place in NATO, because right now, the NATO is experiencing a multi-level crisis. First and foremost, the country that made the NATO possible in the first place, particularly under the Trump, is not very much committed to it. And then the European strategy is effectively is the waiting game. So let's wait Trump out and then hope the things will, will go back to normal. But I think this is also quite a flawed strategy because even if Biden comes, Biden will not expect less of you. I think Biden will expect more of you. And then the question of Turkey, we have to see this through this larger perspective. So yes, there will be like many unhappiness vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Turkish action, particularly like countries like uh, France, Cyprus, France, Greece, etc., recently being more and more vocal about uh, Turkey's action. But at the same time, there are many other countries, like for instance, Italians are quite unhappy with the French action in places like Libya as well. So, so this, uh, this internal NATO fleet will continue with no ramification on Turkey's place in NATO, I think. But the trouble will be, what will be the future of NATO? A, if Trump wins, B, if the Biden wins, because that will have impact not only on Turkey, but on all other NATO members. So if I may add something here to Galib's uh, assessment, two things. First, technically speaking, Turkey cannot be kicked out of NATO, right? Uh, That's true, yes. If, right? But I, I realize it's a technicality, but I think this, this has a, a lot of bearing on, 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 on the future. That's number one. And second, relationships between NATO and Turkey might be strained due to particularly the S-400s and Turkey being more belligerent uh, in the region. True. But if you look at Libya, for example, the cooperation between U.S., uh, you know, Africa Command and Turkish military, sort of uh, limiting the, the influence of Russia in Libya, is a perfect sign of the good old cooperation. And the reason actually why, why U.S. and Turkey are getting along so well in Libya is because the guys that are in the Africa Command have a working relationship with the Turkish military because they are all, you know, they know each other. Well, I simplified, obviously, uh, from NATO. So it's not like cooperation within the alliance is completely off and nobody's talking to each other. Yes, on a number of issues, there, ha there is tension. I would accept that. But in the case of Libya, Turkey has been very instrumental in, in limiting Russian ambitions in Libya, which is obviously very much welcomed both by the U.S. and NATO. So, you know, it's not a black and white game there. Another question here will be, if mm -hmm. let's assume that Biden wins, mm -hmm. what will be the NATO's major threat perception or constitutive threat perception? Because historically it was Russia, but now more and more the U.S. sees through China as the systemic rival. The EU document also denoted China as a systemic rival. So if the U.S. through the NATO, if the NATO next page puts competition with China and and with Russia as the priority, then that will really require a quite major assessment, not only regarding Turkey, but within the Europe as well too, because there is a growing divergence between the European member states vis-a-vis -vis this country. Like the countries like Poland, Eastern Europe are very much concerned with Russia, but the countries like Southern Europe is very much cooperating with Russia. So there are like increasingly the gap the gap between the EU member states the NATO member states on Russia is is growing people like Macron publicly stated that basically we should not like regard Russia through the old prism of the enemy rather than we should explore new form of cooperation so 
right now, I think one of the crises that the NATO is experiencing, its funding logic is being challenged mostly internally. Since we started talking about the Russian influence, I think it's worth remembering that the S-400s crisis, debate, problem, question, whatever you would like to name it, is still there. It's just deferred. Exactly, exactly. Because the S-400 batteries and important parts of the system are already deployed on Turkish soil. What did not happen is that back in April, they were supposed to activate the system. But it did not happen, and uh, according to the official statements from Ankara, the reason was the pandemic. Now we are back to normal in every sense of the word, but the system is still not activated. So that's quite obvious that the pandemic was just used as an excuse to defer the crisis with the U.S. And from my point of view, Turkey is not going to activate the S-400s before the U.S. elections. Would you guys agree with my assessment? Yes, yes. Uh, but <laughs> having said that, yeah, it's a very you know succinct conversation. But having said that, uh, I'm not sure if the outcome of the uh, elections would impact the consequences if Turkey were to go uh, ahead with the move. But of course, that's a speculation. But what I'm hearing at least is that regardless of who is sitting in the Oval Office the consequences for Turkey might be the same. Very clear. The only thing that the U.S. president could do and had done in the case of Trump is that they delayed the sanctions. That's the thing. And a few days ago, there was a statement from Secretary of State Pompeo that the sanctions might be underway soon if the S-400s are activated. So probably I should have said that at least up until the U.S. elections, because I think it would be suicidal for Ankara to go ahead and activate in the next three months before the elections. And if Trump wins again, which looks like the least likely scenario at the moment, but, but if President Trump wins again, then probably there is going to be some kind of hope in Ankara again that he might pull another trick to delay or to stop the sanctions. So at least they will have to see if Trump is going to be there. But coming back to the European perception of Russia, and I think, Galib, you did a very important analysis in terms of like how the U.S. is going to affect the direction of NATO and the security threats, the primary security threat inside NATO, we do not really focus on, especially in the last four or five months since the Idlib attack, where we lost quite a big number of Turkish soldiers. And the attack was organized by uh, the Syrian Air Force, but on Russia's watch. So mm -hmm. the relations between Ankara and Moscow is apparently not really where we left off last year. Am I wrong, Galib? No, you're right. I mean, this relationship is effectively, on the one hand, is quite fragile because this relationship is built on complete mistrust. The level of trust in both countries are lacking. I do travel prior to the coronavirus, at least, to Russia quite often. I speak to Russian Russian scholars or the Russian experts or decision makers. From the Russian perspective, this is a relationship that is built on complete mistrust. It's not a trust-based relationship. It's not institutional. And the Russia is well aware of the fact the very personalized nature of this relationship with limited elite or bureaucratic ownership within the state structure. But at the same time, this is a relationship of basically necessity as well, too. 
the fact that Russia is on the ground in Syria, the fact that Russia is doubling down on its military presence in places like Syria and Jufra means that Turkey has to engage Russia as well. One of the very interesting difference for me was the nature of the reaction that Turkey showed when around 34 or 36 Turkish soldiers was killed in Syria. I mean, whether it was killed by the Syrian regime forces or Russia is not really important. In the end, the primary actor there is Russia. So the actor that primarily bears the responsibility is Russia. So almost no reaction to this. And then the big political and public outcry when the U.S. soldiers put hood over the head of some Turkish soldiers in Suleymaniye in 2003 is quite telling. Because back then, you know, the official reaction, the public reaction, the political reaction was quite strong. The Turkey demanded explanation from the U.S., etc. But on the case of Russia, I mean, even the official statement uh, on the killing was done by the governor of Hatay. So that is one of the historically awkward uh, nature of Turkish-Russian relationship as well, too. But how the Europe is looking at this, the trouble is the default setting of the Europeans is to transfer all these big geopolitical questions to, to Americans. So yes, the Europeans are you know watching, or some are concerned, some really not that much concerned. But this is not really one of the major, major issues when it comes to conversation on Turkey. Yes, it is an issue, but it's not like, you know, how you see between Turkey and the U.S. Because like whenever you engage, you talk with a U.S. official or scholar, the issue of S-400 is quite prominent. The issue of Turkish-Russian relationship is quite prominent on the table. So I don't see this at the same level in Europe. This is partially a result of the Europe transferring big questions, big decisions to the American, but also partially a result of the Europe's different perception, different approach to Russia as well too. So therefore, the Turkish-Russian relationship will be less of a major crisis between Turkey and Europe than Turkey and the United States. But for persons like Merkel, which I think has quite a geopolitical perspective on Turkey, I think the Merkel will be concerned to see Turkey pretty much aligned with Russia. And I think from this perspective right now, because the nature of the Turkish-Russian relationship, the question is, to what extent it is an Erdogan-Putin relationship and to what extent it is a Turkey and Russia relationship? Policy-wise, that doesn't make a difference. But for the future trajectory, that makes great difference. And I think right now, one of the motivation for persons like Merkel, highly likely to make sure that this does not turn into a structural and long-lasting relationship between Turkey and Russia. As I saw in the Turkish media, everybody's talking about the poll where you ask the respondents about the Istanbul Convention and they couldn't really spot the difference from the Montreal Convention, right? <laughs> uh, yes, John. The so, majority, uh, unfortunately. In a, in a rather black, humorous moment, we found uh, out about this because we asked people if they supported the government pulling out from the Istanbul Convention. You know, 52% said they didn't know what it was. And 9% said that, yes, the government should pull out of the convention. And we followed up with that 9% and asked them, why you think this is the case in an open-ended question? And they responded, some of them at least, responded that because, you know, it would be good for the safety of the Straits, of the Istanbul Strait or the safety of Istanbul. And from there, we deduced that actually people, you know, confused the Istanbul Convention with the Montreux Convention on the Straits regarding the Istanbul Strait. The reason we asked about this is obviously the big discussion, but also the fact that, you know, the government, some of the government officials at least claim that there's a big demand 
from the public, you know, a big pressure on them to pull out of the Istanbul Convention. But that doesn't seem to be the case because nobody knows about it. And even if even when people claim to know about it, they actually don't know about it. So there is no demand, at least the overwhelming kind of demand from the public to pull out from the convention. Well, we might go back to this discussion in the next episode. So we already did an episode on the women problems in Turkey and the femicides, but I believe this is an area that we should be tirelessly talking about. But today, I don't want to lose our focus. And in terms of how the EU-West relations are evolving in the light of the domestic political developments in Turkey. Uh, the last point I would like to come back is the conversion of Hagia Sophia back into a mosque. Maybe uh, the governments and the policymakers were not bothered that much, except for Greece and Cyprus, obviously. But the media and uh, mm-hmm. the public opinion in Europe is quite outraged, plays into the hands of the right-wing populist leaders in Europe. So are we... Going back to that kind of discussion in the European landscape, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't expect to go all the way to this landscape. I mean, obviously, there was a major media indignation. And as expected, there was quite a lot of commentaries on this conversion. Like on the day of the conversion, for instance, like, you know, the Hagia Sophia was the number one trending topic on the German Twitter sphere. Obviously, that also led to the conversation of conversation on the secularization versus the Islamization of Turkey debate. But I don't see this turning into a long-lasting conversation because like more and more the Turkey expert the informed opinion on Turkey doesn't read this through this kind of like Islamism and and secularism narrative yes I mean the Islamism and secularism narrative does have a resonance but I think in recent years more and more this is being seen through the authoritarianism the personalization of power the motivation of a person who is losing the ground but still wants to cling on to power in one way or another because the language of Erdogan the narrative of Erdogan in recent months particularly has been more and more conservatively flavored. But I think we are experiencing the most secular period of Erdogan's rule since 2002 in terms of the demography around Erdogan, in terms of the demography and then the social disposition of the cabinet, the demography and the social disposition of Erdogan's advisor and it's, uh, the pro-Erdogan's media disposition. So in a sense, we are seeing the most secularized period in terms of the number of conservative and Islamist comparatively being less so. And I think that another reason that Erdogan is turning to more conservative one, I mean, I'm sure John knows much better than I do. He's, he has much more expertise. But I think the establishment of these two parties, because right now there is two other contenders that wants to appeal to the minds and hearts of the conservatives, Islamists in Turkey. And now Erdogan still wants to continue with its monopoly over these hearts and minds. But the tragedy that it's facing, the more that he goes down the road of these conservative themes, Islamic themes, the more that he might lose the touch with the center. Turning to the European scene, yes, that has created temporarily on the days of the particular the Friday prayers in Hagia Sophia, Islamization versus secularism in Turkey. But I think this is more the result of less informed opinions. The more informed opinions, they see the element of in it, in it everyone wanting to live a legacy. And there, obviously, the Islamic sentiment has quite a significant influence on Erdogan, but they don't see this as part of a big political trends of Islamizing the country. We are coming to a close, but John, if you have any final words on Hagia Sophia and if you agree with Galip that the Islamic flavor behind all these moves is 
still lagging behind the autocratic tendencies of President Erdogan. Would you agree? Yes, Johnson, I would agree. And quite frankly, uh, I I can understand why European countries' leaders did not really react to this. Because I've been saying this as well. I can understand why, obviously, Greece and Cyprus reacted more. But at the end of the day, this is a building in Turkey. I mean, this could be characterized as a unpolite or unkind move or inconsiderate move even. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a building in Turkey and uh, and Turkey decides whatever it wants to do with it. So I think that's that. So I agree with Galip in that the primary motivation behind this is that President Erdogan is for the first time being challenged by conservatives, valid conservatives uh, in the political spectrum, in the political arena. So he wants to dominate that domain and not to leave actually room for uh, anyone else when it comes to being religious or being religiously conservative. However, uh, let me perhaps drop one note for the future and maybe we can come back to this if it materializes. As these things happen, it actually starts putting President Erdogan at odds with its coalition partner, the MHB. Because in the event of Hagia Sophia, the remarks made by head of the Anet Religious Affairs that many thought was undermining Atatürk actually caused some stir among the MHP base. Mr. Bahçeli, the head of MHP, responded to this in a very controlled manner, but he also made sure to say that there is no one in Turkey that would be so bold to undermine Atatürk and that they would be against it if any such thing was done in the future. So if Erdogan continues on this trend, it might also give him a difficult time vis-à-vis his relationship with its partner, who is at the core is still a secular movement. I mean, in last three years, in a sense, the ideology that binded the AK Party and then the MHP together was nationalism, quite also a militarized nationalism. But now, and then the conservative Islamic tone in this nationalism in recent years was relatively less pronounced. But now, the more that he has to also bring, once again, the Islamist conservative flavors to this nationalism, highly likely that we might see more rooms of divergence, more area of divergence between the MHP and the AK Party as well. Therefore, this trajectory, on the one hand, is that you might lose the touch with the center, And on the other hand, actually, that might also drive a wedges between MHP and AK Party. The Hagia Sophia, it was an easy issue because, like, you know, almost particularly from the Turkish center-right and the right and conservative politics, all the leaders has historically advocated for the conversion of Hagia Sophia back into a mosque. And it's not only a religious aspiration, but it was also, in a sense, the manifestation of the sovereignty of Turkey vis-a-vis West. So that was, in a sense, appeal both to MHP and then the Uh, AK Party voters. But when you go beyond this, the conservative Islamic files, I think might be one of the points of divergence between the MHP and AK Party. So therefore, this politics of symbols has its utility to some level, but it can also be quite backfiring as well too. Our time has come to a close. It has been delightful to have you, Galip, and as always, Jan. Thank you so much. I could go on for hours, but I think uh, we should wrap up here. Stay healthy. Try to enjoy the summer in Berlin as much as you can, Galip. 
Hope so. <laughs> and John, thank you for your valuable contributions. Enjoy the Aegean coast and hopefully we can join you some point during August. That will be great. And th- thank you, Galip. Thank you, John. I was very much delighted. Many thanks for this. Until next time, all our audience, please stay safe and healthy. Goodbye. <laughs>